0: Hi, my name is Isabel, and I'm your host for the ESG Quick Takes podcast, brought to you by ESG Book. With me today is Ioannis Yanu from the London Business School, whose research is focused on corporate sustainability and sustainable business models. Welcome, Ioannis. Really, really good to have you on our show.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great. So let's start from the beginning. The concept of corporate sustainability and ESG have been around for a while. And you've been studying it and researching it, teaching about it for almost two decades. Can you name a few major changes that you've seen during the time that you've researched this topic in how people approach it, in how the world is dealing with it?
1: Absolutely. So in the in the last two decades, I would say that the major shift has been from considering these broader environmental and social issues as issues that are peripheral to businesses to actually issues that are core for businesses and for strategic management. So I think we have seen this transition where companies are realizing that um, in the current system that we are in, this exploitation of resources, overextraction, waste of resources, as well as their um, negative social implications are no longer an acceptable way of doing business. So we have seen this shift whereby, um, whereas in the past, these environmental and social issues were someone else's problem, for instance, the government because they needed to regulate or, to be honest with you, these were problems that maybe they were not seen. Maybe companies were polluting, but people were... That was not visible, for instance, right? So I think we have seen this transition where these issues have become um, core. To the businesses, to their operations, and fundamental issues that essentially define a lot of their stakeholder relationships. Think about it. In recent years, for instance, customers are demanding more environmentally and socially responsible products and services. Investors are integrating ESG in their investment decisions. Civil society is waking up and is demanding accountability. We've seen boycotts, we've seen protests, demonstrations, we've seen the the emergence of of even more. activists like Extinction Rebellion, uh, um, Fridays for the Future, Stop, Just Stop Oil, and so on and so forth. More demands for transparency in supply chains. And of course, we have seen governments and regulators increasing their level of scrutiny on companies on these issues. So suddenly what was considered in the past that someone else's problem becomes not only our problem as businesses, but an issue that affects pretty much Every one of our stakeholders, of course, in different ways across industry. So by the way, that is exactly why I often call this the sustainability disruption, because it demands a level, a different level of skills at the level of individuals, and in fact a different level of capabilities at the at the level of companies in order to be able to successfully navigate this disruption. That has been I think, in my view, the major fundamental shift when we talk about corporate sustainability, that's the shift that has happened in the last two two decades or so.
0: And going deeper on that, so let's say you have a CEO who is quite struggling to implement ESG principles in their business, and to your earlier point, they might miss the skills needed to really do that effectively. Can you give a few recommendations here uh, on a very high level and perhaps also blend in some examples of, of your research that, of companies that you've been looking at.
1: No, absolutely. Uh, it, you don't build uh, skills and capabilities overnight. That requires a long-term plan and a series of investments and a thorough consideration of the direction that you're going, right? So let me give you an example. We we'll talked about, we'll talk about the skills gap. Imagine that you are an insurance company, right, with uh, with clients in areas that are susceptible to wildfires, to flooding, to droughts, and so on and so forth. Imagine, for instance, that you are an insurance company that uh, works a lot with the agriculture sector. So how could you possibly ignore the impacts of climate change when, for instance, you try to uh, figure out what your insurance premiums should be, what you should charge, right? But for that, in order to do that accurately, not only do you need an understanding of climate change, you need to at least try to see how that translates into um, different weather patterns and how that increases the risks for the assets that you're insuring. All of that sounds great. But the question is, who's going to do that? right? Have most uh, uh, insurance companies traditionally have climate scientists working for them in order to tell them uh, how to do this or even the climate scientists that may have can they actually translate real physical risk into a monetary value so these some some insurance companies yeah indeed they do have climate scientists but those are the ones that started making these investments early and now they find themselves with those capabilities but the majority of them, don't, right now, think about this in the context of bigger issues, though. Biodiversity loss, for example, plastics pollution, acidification of the oceans. Think about if 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 you are a fishery, for example, and you need to understand the risks on 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 your fisheries because of the increasing uh, temperature of the oceans. All of those are uh, highly specialized areas of expertise. And by the way, I haven't even mentioned social issues. I'm focusing on environmental, social, even more. Uh, complex because often they emerge from changes in social preferences and sociological processes, right? So for that exact reason, I see, I think that uh, companies are waking up to that skills gap, and also that ch- translates into capabilities gap at the level of the firm. That's why a lot of them, although talk the talk about how to integrate sustainability into the core of what they do, they are actually still experimenting on how to do this. There is no off-the-shelf book that they can just, you know, read and, and will. Tell tell. tell them what to do, not yet anyway, right? There's also the technological aspect. A a number of these solutions or products or services or processes in the sustainability space may well require innovation and technologies that consider, of course, not only the creation of financial value, but also a neutral or even positive impact on the environment and society at large. A lot of companies may not yet be capable in those uh, technologies, they might not be capable in working with non-traditional stakeholders like NGOs. So you see, there's a whole host of 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 challenges, and that is why, frankly, I often say that the sustainability disruption is a disruption on steroids, right? Because suddenly, not only do you have all of these changing demands and expectations by, well, pretty much every stakeholder in your ecosystem. But at the same time, you don't start from neutral. You start from a negative point because you are lacking the skills, the knowledge, the experience, and the capabilities that you require. And if there's something we know is that the corporate graveyard is packed with once iconic brands that failed to navigate actually more straightforward disruptions, right? Think about Sears, Kodak, uh, Polaroid, Blockbuster—the list—it's endless. That's why the sustainability disruption is not going to be just you know a walk in the park, and all companies will be, become sustainable, will save the world, dance, kumpaya, and that's it. Right? It's going to be a challenging path ahead that what needs us as business executives to bring together our traditional, let's say, knowledge of business basics, but also a profound understanding of what these environmental social challenges are and how we can combine the two.
0: And just a question on that, have you seen already examples of companies that perhaps not went bust, but at least struggled with weathering the disruption that you describe and perhaps also some winners of companies that actually maneuvered that disruption remarkably well?
1: Yeah, so that's a fantastic question. And I think what we need to keep in mind is that sustainability demands and expectations are a relatively recent phenomenon. So to be honest with you, when I teach in the classroom, the first disclaimer that I make on day one is that there is no such thing as a sustainable company. There is no such thing that's an almost sustainable company. In other words, it's still early days. And although we do hear a number of names like Patagonia, Unilever, Novo Nordisk, and so on and so forth, what I always highlight is that we because we're still in early days, what we're seeing around the world is experiments companies are experimenting with the underlying practices on how do i deal with these environmental challenges how do i deal with these social challenges because for a lot of them these are challenges that they haven't dealt with be- before at least not with the type of focus and attention that they're dealing with them now so all of the examples by the way whether it's good or bad ones they are part of this overall experimentation so and 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 we know this that we know that when companies experiment what comes with experimentation well if you do it right Failure is going to be part of it, right? You cannot experiment and always be successful all the time. Then that's not an experiment, right? So right now what we're seeing is we do see failures. We, def- we do see some false starts. For instance, think about the plant-based diet, right? It started on good principles, the idea that we need to move away from meat, for instance, in order to reduce carbon emissions. And, and you've seen companies like Impossible Food and Beyond Meat and so on that emerged, Um but suddenly you realize they almost created a different type of problem. There's been question marks about how healthy are these alternatives really are. But at least that shows you that the conversation about a healthy diet has started. And even if B- Impossible Foods or Beyond Meat didn't get it right, well, someone else is. Right? I mean, the world is... Full of entrepreneurs. On the other hand, if you see Oatly, for instance, right, they've been quite successful, and so much so, you know, now there is coffee chains in the US that instead of having natural milk as their default, they actually have oat milk as their default, right? So we have seen those kinds of of experiments are more successful than others, and I think the name of the game. The game going forward is building those skills and capabilities through this type of experimentation and making sure, especially every time that you fail, that you have the processes in place to learn from failure, um, because that's also how you build that capability, right? You learn from success as well as uh, perhaps more so from, from failure as, as you go along on this path.
0: So in that regard, we also need to be somewhat forgiving around like, attempts that might fail, not scream immediately greenwashing with every attempt that goes wrong, because it could have been a genuine try of a company moving in a certain direction.
1: Absolutely. And greenwashing is a big chapter. And I think that it's a lot more complex than people think it is. And you rightly identified a very important point there, that given that there is so much experimentation, we're bound to see failure. Right? And when we see failure, we need to be very careful be- before labeling it greenwashing. Because imagine that it's a genuine failure and then in the public domain is as greenwashing. What's, what does that mean? It means that the company is going to become much more conservative. It means it will say, well, why should I experiment if when I fail, they're going to put this label on me? I might as well not experiment. But if companies don't experiment, how on earth are they going to transition? Right. And there's, the, there's a couple of more components. If, if, if since we did open the, the question of, of greenwashing, I think in my experience, if you define greenwashing as these exaggerated, deliberately, intentionally lying to your stakeholders, I think the percentage, it's not that they don't exist, they do exist. And there are companies that intentionally and deliberately lie to their stakeholders, right? Because they think that's the, you know, the, the easy way out to becoming green. But let me, let me tell you the silver lining. Why do they lie? For me, greenwashing indicates that they feel the pressure to do something about it. If they did not care or if they did not feel any pressure, why would they lie about it? I think that regulators are trying to fix, obviously, with a number of green codes and green regulations, but there's a silver lining that tells me that the pressure is on. Some of them make the wrong choice of lying through it, but the pressure is on, and that's a good thing. It means that companies are facing The pressures to be environmentally and socially responsible. The the second point I want to make in that is is the following. In my view, in order to navigate this sustainability disruption, leaders need to essentially fundamentally transform their organizations. Whether we talk about at the level of, of the operations, at the level of strategy, and most importantly, it's a cultural change. For organizations, it has to do with the norms, the values, and the beliefs of the organization. So, if you are a CEO that shows up at work on Monday and you say, Well, I want to make this a sustainable business, I want to make this an, a positively impactful business, that takes a whole cultural management process, correct? But how are you going to do this? Like, you know, you need to create a narrative, you need to project a vision. Sometimes you might need to use some communications and even hyperbole in order to incentivize, motivate, excite people about where you want to take them. And you see, though, from the outside, that might be perceived as greenwashing. But do you know of any corporate leader that led a, a corporate transformation process? That and, and in order to do that, they sent out an email and said, let me clarify for you why we need to change. And before sending that email out, by the way, send it to the corporate lawyers to sanitize it just in case there's anything risky in it. Now, you, you know what I mean? So it's... The, Who is going to be able to motivate? And sometimes when we're talking about organizations that have tens of thousands of employees, how are you going to inspire, galvanize? You have to be careful in your communications. You need to distinguish between where you are today and where you want to go. But equally from the outside, we should be be very careful when we say where, uh, when we distinguish between what is and isn't greenwashing in terms of what companies are actually saying, where they are or they're not. And that only is, is It's almost that we can only define after the fact. So, for instance, if Paul Polman was not able to get Unilever to deliver on that vision, then Paul Polman will be the world's biggest greenwasher, right? Um, an opposite example of that is Larry Fink, because Larry Fink, truth of the matter is, he did not, not yet anyway, manage to get BlackRock to deliver on that message, th- therefore creating questions about how genuine that message was to begin with. So when you juxtaposition those two leaders, you can see that, of course, you need the rhetoric, the calms to motivate, galvanize, inspire, excite people to change. But you should also be very careful to match that vision with real short, medium, and long-term results, outcomes, evidence that you can show to the world that you have actually implemented.
0: Right now we have data, we have some historical track record, so you don't need to start from scratch anymore, perhaps like you used to in the past. Switching gears a little, obviously ESG has been having a lot of pushback to your earlier point around greenwashing, skepticism about what sustainability should mean in generally in business and whether it should be there. And a well-known corporate finance professor Ashrod Damondaran recently published an op-ed in the Financial Times that basically announced the death of ESG as we know it. You responded to that article, and if I may summarize it very bluntly, you totally disagree with the article, and you don't think that ESG is beyond redemption. However, your response was obviously much more thoughtful than the way I, I summarize it. Could you elaborate on what you think the ESG backlash gets totally wrong?
1: So let me uh, start by saying that, again, I I like to see silver linings and things. So for me, the anti-ESG backlash is such an important component of the conversation because it tells me that ESG is effective. And the backlash is coming from those political and ideological circles that you would have expected it to. Now, if ESG was totally ineffective, did not affect businesses, did not affect finance and so on and so forth, all of these anti-ESG folks would be entirely silent. So for me, it does excite me that they speak up because it mean, it tells me that ESG is effective and is moving in the right direction. That's point number one. Point number two is that we need to distinguish between this whole idea of corporate sustainability as a concept versus how it's actually implemented. And those are two very different things. As a concept, there is no question in my mind that this is the, one of the biggest uh, managerial challenges for the reasons we talked about earlier in terms of how do I adjust to a rapidly shifting competitive landscape in which the demands and expectations of my key stakeholders are changing and are changing quickly. So in that respect, on the conceptual front, I don't think that there's any issues with corporate sustainability. And therefore, at that level, I see the anti-ESG backlash as an entirely ideologically driven attack or a lot of the times, and I'm very sad to see and say this, it may be driven by people that whose personal interests have been affected by ESG or for self-promotion sometimes or for self-visibility. And I'm not referring to anyone specific here. Now, when it comes to the FT article that you mentioned by Professor Damodaran at NYU, what I particularly did not like about that article is Well, essentially, it read more like an angry rant. As academics, we need to be a bit more careful when we put those opinions out because they need to be backed by data, by evidence. And I'm not sure what was the last time that Professor Damodaran actually had a look at the extensive and and the flourishing ESG literature, both within finance as well as with management. But a lot of the assertions that he made are simply not true. Now. This is not to say that ESG implementation, which is the second type of ESG, is perfect. Far, far from it. We need to improve ESG data quality. We need to improve accountability by companies. We need to improve laws and regulations that impose sanctions on greenwashing. We need to improve laws and regulations that um, um, uh, dictate what companies should disclose. We need to improve laws and regulations relating to how we classify ESG funds into green and less green and so on and so forth. There's, I mean, I could list a whole host of factors. But if you agree with me that conceptually the direction of corporate sustainability is the right one, and I tend to think it is, I see no other way through which in the near future you can have a business that is thriving then let's sit down and talk about how we resolve these challenges because this is not just is, this is not just a business issue and certainly it's not a disclosure issue all the numbers that we see from science are absolutely dire. We are having this discussion in 2023 that is likely to be the warmest year of re- on record with surface temperatures already 1.7 degrees above pre-industrial times and the whole year is going to be at 1.4 if you take the planetary as opposed to just the surface temperatures 1.4 degrees above pre-industrial times we have no time for this ideological debates. we should all be f- sitting down and, and and discussing how such a powerful institution, because I do believe that business in general, and more specifically corporates and financial institutions, are such a powerful institution to help us innovate the solutions that we need and scale them up efficiently, effectively, and profitably. It is not clear to me what the alternative is. Let's say we killed ESG. Let's say we killed corporate sustainability, How are we going to get there? How are we we going to get to net zero? How are we going to stop biodiversity loss? How are we going to start rectifying um, these inequalities between developed and developing countries? How are we going to stop the inequalities within countries between low and high income populations or minorities and so on and so forth? It's not clear to me that there is an alternative, or at least there's no viable alternatives that I have seen being put at the table. And the fact that there is no alternative tells me that these attacks lack substance and they're driven ideologically. And the last thing I, I want to uh, very quickly note in that respect is that because a lot of this anti-ESG backlash, by the way, is in the US, right? Not, not so much in Europe, but but it's, it's in the US. And in the US, frankly, it's not an ESG issue. ESG is caught in a broader cultural war that, especially, the right wing and the extreme right wing in the U.S. has instigated in recent years. So, ESG is part of the conversation: abortion rights or anti-abortion, LGBTQ rights versus against LGBTQ rights, trans rights versus against trans rights, gun uh, control versus uh, First Amendment, <coughs> sorry, First Amendment, and so on and so forth. It is within that highly politicized, ideological, cultural war that ESG is, is caught in the crossfire. And it's interesting because, you know, we've seen some attempts in the UK, especially by the conservative government and Rishi Sunak himself or um, uh, um, least Trust to bring in that language of walk and anti walk. But what they hadn't realized is that especially the UK... Uh, electorate is much more sophisticated and much more mature in, in, in its understanding of these issues and effectively has rejected that language and has rejected the culture words. Again, indicating to me that this ESG backlash, it's useful to the extent that it shows that ESG can be effective. It's useful to the extent that we need to pay close attention to its deficiencies, its drawbacks, and work hard and diligently to to address it. But in terms of the solutions that it offers or the alternative solutions that it offers, the anti-SG backlash is entirely useless and unproductive.
0: I want to ask a final question, very brief one actually, because I think that links to some of the cultural wars and like the Woke ink discussion that we have seen. What is the purpose of a company in 2023, 2024?
1: That is a great question. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about corporate purpose, what it is. And to be honest with you, you know, the academic literature, is the jury is still out in the academic literature. Does it pay what it is? How is it different from stakeholder management or ESG or sustainability? So those are a lot of academic discussions. But for me, if you want to define it as purpose, I think it's, I would, I would, uh, basically highlight the two qualities that I t- we talked about earlier for me business as an institution right what what does it do best why does it thrive and scale what does it do best i think business as an institution finds a gap in the market a problem in a, a problem in need of a solution and what businesses does best if you also include of course not only established business but also entrepreneurship it innovates products, services, or business models that fill that gap, fill that need, address that problem. That's capability number one. And the capability number two is that business as an institution, to a large extent, because of the profit motive, can scale up those solutions efficiently, effectively, and profitably, and a lot of times with impact. So, what we're talking about here is about employing those two capabilities and generating positive impact. And that is the challenge of business. And for business, that's becoming an existential issue as well, because that's the adaptation challenge. To, to live in a world where all these environmental and social challenges exist and to thrive in such a world, you ought to adjust how you deal with your stakeholders through your business model and through your operations. And and, and in, on that note, I, so for me, if you want to define that as purpose, that's totally fine by me. But I think beyond the label that we put on it, this is pragmatically what businesses do. And pragmatically, this is what the sustainability challenge is, to bring the the innovation and scaling up capability to talk to the world's biggest challenges, to generate adaptation and in so doing result in both financial as well as social environmental value. And we already see evidence of that, right? We used to talk about unicorns, companies that get to one billion valuation quickly, now this discussion about either green or impact unicorns, companies that can have a, a positive impact on one billion people as quickly as possible. So there, even those types of mind frames are changing within business in terms of what, is, what does it mean to have a thriving business. So these are profoundly complex issues. So I hope that gives you at least my perspective of what I would consider or what some people would consider as purpose. But it's a, it's a little bit more pragmatic, I think.
0: Yeah, no, that's great, and it is so complicated, right? We see a very recent, complicated example, which is sort of nonprofit, sort of for profit, with uh, with OpenAI, and you see how hard it is if you try to embed it in your business structure. Yeah, no, incredible.
1: By the way, on on that, Isabel, I mean, if you look at the numbers, if you compare, for instance, how many NGOs scale up versus how many entrepreneurial startups scale up, there's no comparison, right? But few. NGOs scale up and go to the, you know, the size of Oxfarm and, and others, but a lot more startups scale up. And, and, and that scaling up is very important, given the timeframes that we're facing in order to solve all of these challenges.
0: This closes off this episode, but thank you so much, Janis, for for your insights. Uh, we'll put a link to your work in the show notes so that people can read more about what you're researching at the moment. Yeah, catch you next time
1: thank you very much for having me it's been a true pleasure we covered a lot of ground
0: thank you we did thank you